Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, we're looking again, verse 6 and 7. We read through it twice this morning because it's such a beautiful portion of Scripture. And as we've been looking at the series that we've been looking at in December, we've been looking strictly in the Old Testament because we've been looking strictly at the promised coming of Christ. And it's such a wonderful blessing to see how all these things unfold. You can see within this context who the Lord is speaking about here. Verses... Six and seven. <laughs> that you. Okay. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you, dear Lord, a promise of the coming of Christ, dear Lord, that in these late days, dear Father, we still remember. We remember his promise of his coming, but we also remember and look back to the actual coming of our Lord as a child born into this world to save man from his sin. And we give you thanks, dear Father, that this is such a wonderful blessing to us and so much of it promised in days of old. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would be with us this morning, that you would renew our spirit, renew our own heart, dear Lord, to truly follow after you. And we give you praise again and thanks in Jesus' name. I had an opportunity a number of years ago to share of who Christ is um, to a couple of people that came knocking on my door um, who they, they do not believe that Jesus himself is actually God manifest in the flesh that we have in the, um, in the epistle to Timothy. And, and as they were trying to explain what they believed with respect to Christ, my heart burned for their own souls. I just desired that they would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge of Christ. And the lady who was there asked the young man to, um, to go and, and get another gentleman who would come. And he seemed to be a man um, of authority in some way. He was dressed in a suit. And it wasn't the suit that gave him the authority. It, it, it was just a, there was a certain air about him. And So I don't know who he was. I don't know if he was one of the elders. He certainly um, gave the impression that he understood the Bible. He certainly understood his own doctrines. And I drew him to this passage. I drew him to this passage here and I asked him the question. You consider Jesus Christ as a man who had come in the flesh. You believe that. And I believe that. And I said to him, in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. But then it gives us a description of who he is. And it says, In his name, his name, whose name? The, the, the child's name. The son 
given, the child who was born, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. This same child that is going to be born into this world is going to be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. I mean, how can a child born into the world also be called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father if he is not the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father? And from that I led on to a, a more of a gospel presentation to him and really, really desiring in my heart that he would see, that he would see that this is indeed Christ, the Saviour, the one who was promised aforetime that would come and save us from our sins. What a, blood, what, a, what a wonderful blessing it was that he would then turn to me and, and actually thank me. Thank me that I didn't rebuke him. Thank me that I didn't, you know, um, he says we, you know, m- most times we, we, we get abused, you know, by, by a lot of people. But you've, you've spoken to us as a friend, you know. And, uh, and I said, I, my heart burns for you, you know, that you would see Christ as he is represented in Scripture. Um, we've gone through this beautiful study and we've looked in the month of December at all the things pertaining to Christ in the Old Testament and and the subjects were, and I know I've repeated this, but the subjects were the coming of Christ foretold and the works of Christ foreknown and the ministry of Christ foreshadowed and this morning's sermon is the life of Christ foreseen, the life of Christ foreseen. Uh, a beautiful outline of passages. But within this passage, I want you to see those very same three that we had spoken of, as well as this one. Within this passage, you will see the life of Christ foretold. You will see the works of Christ foreknown, and you will see the ministry of Christ foreshadowed, even hinted at within this passage, as well as the life of Christ foreseen. So this individual that's come to us that we that we know of as the Christ the coming messiah which is this series is found here in this beautiful passage so the first point for us this morning is that he is foreseen to be our inheritance he is foreseen to be our inheritance so again we've got four uh, points we're going to be they're fairly short points Foreseen to be our inheritance is the first one, our sufficiency the second, our head the third, and our encouragement the last. It says there in verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But notice, it says, For unto us a child is born. He is born unto us. He is not born unto a single individual. He wasn't born unto God, yet God is the Father. He wasn't born unto Mary, yet Mary is his earthly mother. He was born unto us, to the people of the world, to us. And that is something that's not quite understood. We see the same in the, in the next portion about, about being a son given. But, but most importantly, he was born unto us. Now we know which gospel, do you remember which gospel it is that actually speaks more specifically to the birth of Christ? It's the gospel presentation that we have and it's him coming to us as a man. Remember we've got four gospels 
Yeah? And each of those four Gospels, though they are similar and they overlap in many ways, each of those Gospels present Christ from a different perspective. Okay? The Gospel of Luke is the one that presents him as a man. Presents him very strategically and specifically as man. Okay? The other three Gospels have their own particular focus, which is good for another study. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where we, we see the angel coming, angel Gabriel coming to Mary and blessing her and telling her of, of how blessed she is among women, that God would choose her of all others, that, uh, that she would be the birth mother of Christ. Verses 7 to 11, we want to see that what the angels say with respect to who Christ is and who he is come unto. Who was he born unto? It says in verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. Unto you. And notice the word is you. What do we understand about the word you when we're looking at it in the authorised version of the Bible? We know that it's plural. It's not singular. Modern translations don't have the distinction, but we have the distinction. And the distinction is a faithful and correct interpretation of that which was in the former translations, in the former or in the original documents, which we have in the Greek or the Hebrew. English had lost its singular and plural pronouns even at the time of the writing of the authorised version of the Bible in the 1600s. The words thee and thou and thine were already old English. We understand that. They were reintroduced into the Word of God because we needed an accurate translation. And here we have a most important translation, which we wouldn't see otherwise because it would be indistinguishable. You, you, your, yours, in modern translation, could be singular or plural. We don't know. But we know here it's plural. It's plural. It wasn't only to the shepherds. Notice he wasn't speaking to Mary. The angel was addressing this discourse to the, the shepherds in the field. And he says that this tiding of great joy shall be to all people. So in our context, we have an understanding that this is to all people. So when we look at the word you, we, we recognise that it wasn't only to the shepherds, but it was to all people. Unto you is born. Unto you is born. And that's why the multitude of the heavenly host shun round about them and praising God and saying, and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And we know that the word men in scripture also refers to women. There's no, there's no question about that. For both the male and the female are men. They are men. So he was a child that was to be born to us, but also... He was also to be 
a son given and a son given to us. The second part of that first portion of the verse says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Again, he wasn't a son to be given to any one person, but to all people. Yet he was indeed a son. And we don't take away from Mary the, the son of God that was given to her as a mother. We can only think of the burning heart that she would have had for her own son. We could recognize that because she was, again, the birth mother. And for a son and a mother, the, the bond and the relationship is so strong, especially to the mother, especially to the mother. We don't take that away. But the son wasn't given by the mother. The son was given by his father. It was his father who had Christ as the only begotten son. It was his only begotten son. We know Jesus had four brothers. So we know that it wasn't the only begotten son of Mary. But he is indeed the only begotten son of God. And it's from him that he is given. But he is given to us. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians. One of the epistles of Paul found in the New Testament one of the epistles there and it's a beautiful epistle in chapter 1 you'll find it after Galatians and before Philippians wedged in there this incredible incredible doctrinal epistle, epistle that we have and in the first chapter we see a beautiful rendering of our position in Christ and we go down to the 10th verse and we see this being um, being discussed or being presented for us, where Paul says here that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. There is so much spoken of in this passage, just in those two verses. So much that could be spoken of. But you'll notice that our inheritance is in him. He is our inheritance and he has become our inheritance. Okay, And he was foreseen of time of old. Because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus Christ becomes our inheritance. We inherit Christ. He is in us, but we are also in him. And when we look at that, and we look at the wonderful passage in, in the Gospel of John, where both the Father and the Son have us together. Both the Father and the Son are one. And yet both the Father and the Son have us held so tightly within their, within their grasp. Though they are within us, we are in him. He is our inheritance. He is our inheritance. The second point is that he's foreseen to be our sufficiency. Our sufficiency. In the second portion of that first verse, it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That Christ is to be our head and the head of all the world is, is something we'll touch on in a minute, that, he, that the government shall be upon his shoulder. We'll talk to that in a moment. But his name shall be called. Here we've got 
titles of Christ. We've got the titles, his titles, what he is going to be called. Now, in your um, bulletin over the last four weeks, I have given you appellations of Christ that are presented right through Scripture. Mate, just even reading those as they are presented there is a blessing in themselves. Okay, but, but reading them and then comparing them, looking back at the passage that we have that they're represented there in the Bible, and you see the context, mate, it'll blow your socks off. It is incredible to see all these different terms and phrases from A all the way down to the end of the alphabet, all referring to Christ. So there are many things that he is referred to, many identification marks that are there. But here, his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, the angels and the heavenly hosts sang to his birth. They gave God the glory. Christ hadn't even uttered a word yet. Yet to the angels, there was wonder. There was wonder in heaven that they wanted to speak to, that they wanted to represent. And then it was that astonishment that they had. And, at the, and yet we see him again in Luke at the tender age of 12, also becoming an astonishment to the teachers and to the, and to the Pharisees, the rulers who were around him, who were listening to him. They were, he was hearing them and then asking questions and all that heard him, the Bible says, were astonished at his understanding and answers. To them, to them also Christ, at 12, became a wonder. He was indeed a wonder in that way. Yet the fullness of his wonder didn't come until at least he began his ministry. And, and that's incredible. Here he opens the eyes of the blind. He, he heals the lame. He raises the dead. And most incredibly, most incredibly, he forgives sin. He forgives sin. In his earthly frame, he forgives sin. But who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus then asks the question, remember? He says, what is harder, to say, thy son, son, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But to know that the kingdom of God is come down to you, I say unto you, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked. What is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven where no one can see the effect. No one can see that on the outside. If you've been born again, your sins have been forgiven you. But it's very difficult for me to tell that on the outside. What's, what's an easier thing to see? What's an easier thing to be represented? Rise up and walk. I can see that being done. But Jesus wanted them to know as evidence, as evidence of who he is. You want to know evidence of who I am? You think it's difficult for me to say your sins are forgiven you without any evidence? But no, no, for certainty. This is God who is forgiving sin. Rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. It was a testament to the nature of Christ. Wasn't that wonderful? Wasn't that a wonder to the people that were listening to him, the people that were watching those miracles? And yet the wonder doesn't stop there. See, the wonder of Christ continues on. What do we make of his willingness to endure the agony of the cross? What, what do we make of his willingness to be despised of men, to be spat upon, to be mocked, all for the sake of the souls that he came to save? The Bible says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. He came to his own, and his own wouldn't receive him. What, what do we make of that? 
What do we make of him being on that cross in agony and understanding that with his breath, in order to be able to inhale, he had to push himself up on that cross because of the position that he was in, the dropping down on that cross, you can't inhale in that position. And with that breath to exhale, he asked for forgiveness for those that were... those that were at the foot of the cross they were gambling for his clothes they were gambling for his clothes (laughs) and that breath just even then what I can't comprehend it I can't comprehend it I can't comprehend what wonder that is what love that is that would, he would forgive them and ask for forgiveness for them while they're toying with his garments and gambling for him and gambling for those things that they've stripped off him. They pressed the crown of thorns, not small thorns, it's not the little prickles that we get in our little rose bushes. We've seen those thorns and they're that big. And he, they pressed that into his, into his head. You know? You're a king. You're a king indeed. And it's a wonder that he would die on their behalf. That's a wonder. What do we say about him raising himself from the dead? What, what, what wonder is that? What do we say about him raising himself from the dead? But raising himself from the dead for a purpose. It was raising himself from the dead to show us that we have everlasting life. We have that everlasting life in Christ. That's what he was doing. He was doing that for us. What a wonder that is. And what a wonder also that he lives always now at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Daily, he makes intercessions for us. I don't know about you, but I need him interceding for me. I need him interceding for me. I need him interceding for me daily at least. There's not a question. Excuse me. He's full of wonder. And shouldn't we call him wonderful? Shouldn't he be called wonderful? He should be called wonderful. But he's not just called wonderful. He's called wonderful. And then he's also called counsellor. Understand and notice something here. He is referred to as counsellor. He is second to none. He is second to none. He is not a wonderful counsellor. As many translations have removed that that, that pause, that comma, and separating the distinction from him being called wonderful and him being called counsellor, it's not a comparative phrase. He is not a wonderful counsellor. He is the counsellor. He is the counsellor. His counsel is not described by its comparative value. Christ is the counsellor and not a counsellor. And we know that. We know that when his disciples went back and walked no more with Christ, Jesus said unto the twelve, he said, will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words 
of eternal life. Thou hast the words of eternal life. What other counsellor are we to go to? Are we to entertain counsellors who do not have the words of eternal life? Many today are not coming to Christ, not willing to come to Christ, not willing to submit themselves to his call, to his counsel. Not to his counsel they would go, but they would go to other counsellors. Not different from those even in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 47, he says that thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels, speaking to Israel. You are wearied. You don't know it yet, but you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Now, he says, let the astrologers and the stargazers and the monthly, monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Where were they seeking their counsel? Not to God. In Isaiah 30, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, that take cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they might add sin to sin. Christ is our counsellor. He is the word, and we have him. You know, it's difficult to even fathom the idea of God being reduced to a book. But we don't have a description in Scripture, a distinction in Scripture to go to. We have the Word of God within the Word of God. The more you consume that book, the more you read that book, you are changed. You are changed. The counsels that are found within the pages of the Bible, that everlasting book, the words that will not pass away, that the flower and the grass is going to pass away, and the glory of man will pass away, yet the words of God will not pass away. Yet those words are there contained that we might receive counsel. Not good ideas, not just good ideas. We are changed by that word. We are changed by that word. Just as the water from heaven comes down and and waters the earth and, and helps it grow, yet the grass doesn't know the contents of the water, doesn't know the chemical compositions of it, doesn't understand it. The cattle don't think of it when they consume that which was actually grown by water. And yet, it returns back to where it came from. We see that in our cycle on earth, and God refers to his word having just that same power. The word is our counsel, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not known as the word of God for nothing. And I'm not referring to the pagan logos. I'm not referring to that. Many people talk about that, even in Christian circles. It's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. His name shall be called the word of God, the Bible says. Christ alone is our counsellor. Forsake his words and you forsake the words of eternal life, the words that sustain us, the words that are sufficient for all our needs. And it doesn't stop there. He goes on, he's called the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We find in Christ our full sufficiency, our full sufficiency. For if indeed he is the mighty God, there is nothing he is not able to do for us. There is nothing Christ is not able to do for us. You know, if we ask of him bread, is he going to give us a stone? If we ask him a fish, is he going to give for a fish a serpent instead? Is, is that what we're expecting with the one who controls all things, who knows all things, who understands all things, who guides all things and structures all things? Is that what we're expecting? No, this is the mighty God. This is the mighty God. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. If you were in Isaiah before, it's just two chapters earlier. Isaiah chapter 7. 
We know that there's nothing outside God's ability. And we know that he also made that clear to us, respecting him way back 700 years before he walked the shores of Galilee. Isaiah chapter 7, read from verse 10. It says, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz. Ahaz was the king at that time, the king of Judah at that time. He was in the line of King David. He wasn't a good king. But he says to him, Ask thee a sign, in verse 11, of the Lord thy God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the height above. This is the extent of the sign that, that, that Isaiah is asking, that God is asking Ahaz. This is the extent. Ask it. Ask whatever it will. Ask whatever you will in the looking for a sign that I am speaking to you. But Ahaz proudly says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord, expecting that this is not something that was more demanded than a request And he said, this is God now speaking through Isaiah. He skips over just Ahaz and now he speaks into the entire line of David. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Did he not perform this? Did God not perform this? Was there not avenues of attack against this effort? We have a king who did his best, who believed these words. A pagan king, not a godly king, a pagan king, believed these words to the extent that he actually sent soldiers out to destroy all the children of Bethlehem under the age of two. Because he knew the time of life. He knew when Christ was expected. Because he was told. He was told. He understood the power of this individual that he was to be a king and to reign. Perhaps not to the extent that we are to understand him. That he is the mighty God. But he's also the everlasting father. He cares for us. He is everlasting. Never separates himself from us. Never will there be a time where the Father is not in the Son and the Son not in the Father and we not united in them both as one. Where else we obtain peace but by the Prince of Peace? And we're living in a world that's, that's not in peace, unfortunately. The world is not in peace. The, the world has forsaken its own peace. The more it's turned away from God, the more it's turned away from the Lord, the more it forsakes its own peace. And consequently, it's almost at this stage where you talk about in Revelation where it's rocking to and fro like a drunken man. They've forsaken peace. They're living in fear. And that's how so many people are living today. They're living in fear. But you see, they've cast out that perfect love. Because we know that it's perfect love that casts out all fear. We ask the question, what's the opposite of fear? It's not bravery. It's not courage. It's love. Love is the opposite of fear. When you love, you have no fear. When you know you are loved, you have no fear. The anxieties, the insecurities that we have is because of a lack of both of those things. We have those insecurities and those anxieties for two reasons. Because we lack loving And we feel that we are unloved. That's why those things come up. That's why fears come up. They're the bedrock of it, and we can talk about that on another sermon, but it's that's the bedrock of our anxieties and our fears and our insecurities. But he is the Prince of Peace. 
Here, if we embrace the Prince of Peace and we know Him as the Prince of Peace, we have peace. It's one of the wonderful prayers that we can pray for that the Lord always says, yes. You want peace? Ask the Lord for it. And He always, always says yes. We understand that there's three answers to our prayers, don't we? Yes, no, and wait. (laughs) This one, always, one of the five, always that the Lord says yes. Always yes. Ask for peace and he will provide it for you. All we need and all we search for is found in Jesus Christ. Anything outside of him will always be unfulfilling. Mark me when I say this. Anything you look for outside of Christ will always be, always be unfulfilling. We had a man that came and shared his testimony at the carols night in, um, in Faulkner. His name was Peter Brocklehurst. The name might ring a bell to some. An Australian man known also as the, as the, um, the singing cobbler. He became a world-renowned opera singer. World-renowned opera singer. But he was already a Christian at the age of 20. And at the age of 20, not long after that, he was discovered as an opera singer. He sang at the carols in the domain. He sang, I think, at the grand final. He has sung. He has been well-known in Australia. He came and gave his testimony at Faith Baptist Church because he made very, very clear that he fell into an absolute pit of depression and self-destructive behaviour when after he reached the pinnacle of his career. So all he ever wanted to do was sing. And he reached the absolute highlight of his career. What had he discovered? It was unfulfilling. It wasn't what he was looking for. And many people today are doing that. They're trying to climb the ladder of success. They're trying to find fulfilment in other securities. But our sufficiency and our security is found in Christ and indeed He is foreseen to be our sufficiency. Here he is foreseen, our next point. He is foreseen to be our head. It says there in verse 7, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's interesting that I've, as I've gone through this study series, here we have all those three points that have gone before. I see the coming of Christ foretold in the first verse. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's the coming of Christ foretold. I see also the works of Christ foreknown, described as to its character. It says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And now here, you can certainly see the ministry of Christ foreshadowed because it's compared to David. It's brought up in David's throne. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. We have a foreshadowing in David about the glorious reign of Christ that will come. His government and its righteousness would be a continuation of that promised to David the king. Now remember, the descent of Jesus is in the line of David. And it's that very throne that Christ is to set over us as 
as our head. Now, with that, it's still yet future, but I want you to notice something really interesting. David had put all his enemies under his feet. So too will Christ when he comes. So too will Christ when he comes. When David put all his enemies under his feet, so too will our Lord. He will not come again as a lamb. He will not come again that way. But Solomon, who followed David, had a peaceful reign. It was a reign of complete peace. No war during his time. The kingdom was established under his feet and it was a reign of peace. So too will Christ after he has put all his enemies under his feet. From that point on, there will be nothing but peace. There will be nothing but peace. And we will have that wonderful security. What a joy we have to look forward to. We share in Christ. He is in our inheritance. So will be that peace that we will have. And the last point is this one. Is foreseen to be our encouragement. In the context of our passage this morning is to be an encouragement to the people in extreme trials. If you read um, Isaiah chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, you'll see that brought out. This verse and this passage in verses 6 and 7 was to encourage the people, the people who were indeed in darkness. They were living in darkness. They had their eyes turned away from their king and their God, and they sought after what Isaiah 8.19 refers to as familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. What a weird, <laughs> a weird phrase. I don't quite un- Wizards that peep and mutter. You know, that's what they were looking for. They were looking at them to be their counsellor, them to be their peace. But it wasn't their peace. Them to be their light. But that was extreme darkness. Satan comes as an angel of light. He disguises himself in so many different ways. But it's always, even the occult refers to, they're looking for the light bearer. You know, they're looking for the light bearer. But they don't realise that they are in darkness. Lucifer is, though clothed with light, he is the absolute prince of darkness. And that's what these people are looking to. But in the ninth chapter, he tells them that their dimness shall be lifted and that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Even they that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. That's in Isaiah 9.2, not long before our passage. So, a child indeed was born. And today's the day that we traditionally enjoy celebrating this event. In Australia, Christmas Day is probably the most important day. You know, we see Thanksgiving in the United States, but in, in Australia it's Christmas Day. Um, and it's a day that we, we put aside differences we're supposed to be doing that that's the ideal we're supposed to be loving one another that's the ideal we're supposed to be forgiving one another that's the ideal we're supposed to be considering others before ourselves that's the idea that goes behind the gift giving so when we're giving gifts we're not thinking of ourselves we're thinking about somebody else and that's probably what people struggle with the most because we find ourselves thinking about ourselves more often we certainly know what we want you know but to think about other people is a different thing. But it's a time that we are to do that. We're expected to do that. We're at least to think of Christ in this selfless, selfless act. Though, look, we understand that Christmas is not something, it's not a celebration that's commanded in Scripture. We know that, okay? 
But at least I want you to think of this, that the ideal of the day, the ideal of the day is linked to the nature and the life of the child that was to be born on that day. Everything about Christmas, as far as the ideal picture that the world is looking at, is personified in Christ as that child that is born. And the son that was given, there was a later fulfilment of that promise. Last thought. This passage was written for a time yet future to those to whom it was written. It was written for their encouragement. It was written for a time yet future, but for their encouragement set so long in the past. It was to bring them out of their dark times to think upon Christ. Could you imagine that? In order to encourage these people, they were to look forward to think upon Christ, looking forward, and that would encourage them out of that darkness that they're in. They were looking forward to Christ. You know, they were looking forward to the promise that God had for them in Christ. And we stand in a position where we see the realization of them of that historical event. It was promised in the Old Testament, and we can see how that was promised. And yet we are now 2,000 years removed from the actual historical event of Christ coming in the flesh. And the world has been changed by that event. Should we not be more encouraged? We should be even more encouraged because we've seen the evidence of it. We've seen Christ come. And if you're born again, you've also sensed his presence within your own life. You've been removed from sin, far from sin. Now, there's no darkness in you anymore. There's no darkness in you anymore. Nothing but the light of Christ. He says there in these last words of this passage, it says, from henceforth, even forever. From henceforth. Essentially, it's from the time of the advent of the birth of Christ, from that time even forever. The world does, it seems, dark at times. And we see that. But light, light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. And that's what we rejoice in. That's why we rejoice in Christ. You know, to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour is, is the most glorious thing that can ever happen to you within your life. You know, there is nothing, nothing that can even come close to comparing to having Him as your Saviour. But to grow in Him, to know Him more and more every day, to rejoice in Him, to take hold on Him as wonderful, as Counselor, as the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, to know Him as your Prince of Peace, and to live each day being encouraged by that ah, you're, living in a lo- you're living a life that's invincible in so many ways it won't matter whether you're depraved of, um, of, um, of, of money or depraved of this or depraved of that it's really funny because when I'm speaking to people about you know, some of their problems in, that they have in their lives um, whether to choose this car or that car, whether to look at upgrading to the iPhone 7 or keeping the iPhone 6, these are first world problems. These are first world problems. These aren't third world problems. They don't think on these things. They think on peace. They, they desire 
Hope. You know, these are first world issues. And it's funny because, you know, when I thought of that phrase, and it's obviously not my phrase, it's, it, it's been around for a long time. But every time I'm finding myself, you know, thinking about this or that, I'm thinking, Eddie, these are first world problems. Get over it, you know. It's not an issue. Just pick and go, you know. Um, we have Christ even though we have nothing else. And we, if we have Christ, we have everything. He is all sufficient. He is everything that we need. We need nothing else. And you know what? That's where you find contentment. And that's where you find peace. That's where you find patience. Everything comes, but it comes from Christ. And this is why we spend that time rejoicing in who He is. This is why the coming Messiah was such a wonderful blessing to go through, historically in Scripture. But now we need to look forward. We need to look forward on how to live. So we've looked in the Old Testament respecting Christ. We have that evidence of Him. But now, look to the New Testament also. And as we look to the New Testament, it tells us the glory and the joy of how we can live for the future and how we can bless all the people that are around us. In that, we're a joy. In that, we can see that the volume of the book was indeed written of Christ. But how much I pray that the volume of that book would be found within your own heart and that you would read it and devour that wonderful book, you know. Let's pray. Father, we do again, dear Lord, give you thanks. We thank you for the wonderful joy that we have in Christ. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would bless us with a greater knowledge of you. That you would help us, dear Lord, to wonderfully learn from your own words. And that the word of God, dear Lord, would manifest itself within our hearts and within our minds as well as within our souls. I ask you, dear Father, please, that you would bless my brethren here this day, that you would bless them and be with them, encourage them, until we come together again, dear Lord, in the name of the Lord. And we thank you in the name of our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.